Now, I have something that I want you to consider as we start our message today. All right, so pretend this vase, this bucket, uh, is everything that God is. Okay, it's all of his truth, his wisdom, his mercy, his kindness, his compassion, his holiness, his wrath, his justice. Everything that God is is contained in this bucket. Okay, now pretend that this is you. And this is what you know and understand and live out about all of who God is, right? And so what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna pour this into there and I want you to tell me stop when it gets to the level that you think your understanding is of God, okay? So this is all God is. You're gonna tell me, that's what they did first service. You know something, you at least know his name. That's gotta be a drop. So, 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 so and, and what we'll do when we get to a good level of stops will just stop, all right? So are we, are we clear? What are you gonna tell me when the water gets to the level you think you know what God is, you know, as much as you know about God, what are you gonna say? Stop, okay. All right, ready? Okay, stop. Well, that's about what happened first service. As a matter of fact, I left the water from first service in there, can't you tell? I was gonna dump it back, but I was like, why, why bother? Here's, here's, here's why I do this. This space between what we know about God and who God is, is a very, very critical space. Because that space of who God is and what we know about God is an invitation to growth. Right? Because a a way to think about that space is not only is it a place for growth, it is a place of struggle. Because growth oftentimes feels like struggle, doesn't it? Um, and, and what's interesting about this space is, is change has to happen. Between here and here, change has to happen. Now, a little spoiler, right? In this space, you have to change or God has to change. Guess who changes? That's the spoiler. God doesn't change. Who he is and what he has said is truth, and it is truth for all time and all ages and all people, that doesn't change. Where our struggle comes in and where our growth comes in is where we have to adjust what we know and what we believe to line up with what God is, to line up with with who God is. And what's interesting, this change that we have to experience our bodies are actually designed to fight against change. Did you know that? You have this process that operates at a very cellular, cellular level called homeostasis. And it means that your body fights to keep everything the same. Homeostasis is what keeps your body temperature regulated at 98.6. Because when you get hot, homeostasis makes your body sweat so that your temperature cools down and goes back to a 98.6. When you get cold, homeostasis is what goes into effect to make you start shivering because that creates body heat, which raises your temperature back up. Your body is designed to keep everything just the way it is. And if that's true, is it fun to live in this area of struggle, in this area of change? No, it's not. But yet, here's what I know to be true. I believe all of us struggle. And what we're gonna see today is that in this space, homeostasis isn't possible. Change has to happen. And if God doesn't change, we do. 
And if we change and it struggle, here's what we're going to see. We're going to see Jesus is greater than our struggles. Jesus is greater than whatever it is that we're holding on to that isn't him. And whatever we struggle to hold on to, Jesus is greater than that. And here's what I believe to be true, that we are all struggling in some way. Right, We all have something that we are holding with this, this tight fist that isn't God. And we struggle to let it go. A few weeks ago, uh, when we did communion, uh, the, the, the sermon was about Jesus is greater than your no way. And I, had everybody, I asked everybody to write a no way on a piece of card and bring it to the communion table and leave it there when they, when they took the elements of communion. So it was this visible picture that, that I'm laying this no way down and, I'm, and Jesus is greater than that no way. Well, what I did with those cards is I took them all and, and I had them in my office for about a week. And every, every day I would go through some of them because honestly, it was too deep and too heavy to go through all of them because because I prayed over them as I went. And I don't mean like this deep prayer like over them, but, but I prayed over them as I was reading them and, and I felt your struggle and I, I felt your pain. And, 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 and what I want you to hear is that everybody in this congregation is struggling in some way. Struggling with debt, struggling with insecurity, struggling with fear, struggling in our marriages, struggling in raising our kids, struggling in raising teenagers. We're struggling in our jobs. We're struggling in our ministry and pouring ourselves out for others. See, we all are struggling. And, and, and today, what I hope that we see is that these struggles are an invitation to change. And they're an invitation to grow. Today, we're gonna be in Hebrews chapter 12. We're gonna be doing verses three through 17. If you need a Bible, there's some in front of you. If you're using that Bible, it's on page 848. Um, or, like I said, we're in the Bible app, so you can download the Bible app, uh, click under events, then click on Fellowship Asheville, and all of our announcements are there. The scripture is there today. Uh, there's a place for you to take notes and save it. And then on the app, there's something unique that we do, and we give you questions to consider uh, throughout the week. Uh, so, so if you want some kind of additional uh, way to kind of process the message, that's what's there on that Bible app under events and under Fellowship Asheville. And we're in our series called Greater Than, and we're seeing how God is greater than all of our ups and downs and doubts and fears. He's greater than all of our failures, and he's greater than even all of our successes. And today, we're gonna see how he's greater than our struggles, and, and that because he's greater than our struggles, it allows our struggles to be this invitation for change and an invitation to growth. Well, look, look at what happens when we do struggle because where this preacher is gonna pick up, now remember Hebrews is a sermon that was preached, I believe. Um, we don't know who preached it. We don't know uh, uh, who wrote it down, but we do know who it was preached to, to a group of Hebrews, which is why the book is named that. Um, and, and, and what this preacher is gonna do is he's gonna show us this, this, this flip side of what struggling looks like and give us hope as we do it. And so he says, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. And so here's this picture of Jesus. Um, and he says, consider him who endured. Now, what's interesting is Jesus never, never entered the same space that we're in, right? Because he fully knew who God was because he is God. And so the temptation that he faced, although similar to ours, was different because our temptation our struggle is an invitation to grow. He faced temptation because he was God 
and man at the same time. And a part of being human is struggling. And in him facing temptation and and in him struggling, he showed us how to do it, which we'll see here in a minute. But what's interesting is to look and see how this preacher said, what did people do when Jesus was there? They tried to change him and they used hostility to do that. They beat him. And he suffered physical pain and agony because the people around him wanted him to admit something that wasn't true. They wanted him to say that he isn't God. But remember, who doesn't change in this space? God doesn't change. And Jesus could never give them what they wanted because what they wanted wasn't truth. And they escalated to hostility. And see, that's what we try and do sometimes is when we're in that space, we try and get God to change, right? And, 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 and we pick theologies that match what we believe because it makes God change. We, we read scriptures in ways that we agree with because we want it to say what we want it to say. We take what God says to us and tweak it so that it fits what we believe. You see, we have this indicator, though, that shows us if we're doing that, which is what the preacher says next. He says, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. You see, these, these words, weary and faint-hearted, are there to show us, listen, if you feel weary and faint-hearted in your spiritual life, perhaps you're in this space and you're struggling and there's something in your soul that is, has this, this, this tight, clenched fist and you're holding on to something that isn't God, it isn't Jesus, it isn't the Holy Spirit, it isn't the truth of his word and you're holding on to something tighter than you're holding on to him. And what that does is it makes you weary and it makes you tired. Why? Because you're trying to get somebody to change that isn't gonna change. And guess who's much more patient than you are? He is long-suffering. You're gonna wear out. And if you're feeling weary and faint-hearted, and that word faint-hearted is an interesting word because it means you're getting sick because you're so tired. Have any of you ever been there, weary and faint-hearted? It might be because you're struggling. And look at what the preacher to Hebrew uses to describe this place between all of who God is and what we know and understand and live out. Look at verse four. It says, in your struggle against sin, that this space that there could actually be sin there. Is he saying that struggle is sin? No. The preacher isn't saying that struggle is sin. But is it possible that sin is keeping you in that place of struggle? Is it possible that the thing that you're holding on to, that tight fist in your soul, is more about rebellion than it is trust? Is it possible that that place that you're holding on to where you are white-knuckling something, is it possible that there is more self-righteousness there than righteousness? Is it possible that sin is keeping you in your struggle? Look at the length 
that Jesus went to to show us what the struggle looks like. In the rest of verse four, it says, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. When Jesus, uh, remember, he didn't sin, he didn't enter that temptation, but, but here's what we see in Jesus, that, that the struggle isn't sin, but what's keeping you there might be. You see, when Jesus faced temptation, remember, he didn't sin, but in him we see this example. He looked at death knowing that it was gonna be painful and it was gonna be excruciating. He knew the crucifixion was coming. And Jesus had seen people be crucified. He knew torture was coming. And I say when he had seen people be crucified, it was because that was a a typical way of public punishment. And so they would walk down the streets and people were hanging on crosses just like he did. And he saw the pain and agony that they faced. And he in the garden, as he was praying to God, knew that that was coming. And the anguish that he felt was so deep that that the book of Luke says that, that it was like Drops of blood came from his forehead. That was this, that's a, a, a physical reaction to stress where your face is so contorted in stress it actually burst the, the minuscule blood vessels in your skin and, and you can bleed out of your face without there ever being a scratch or an abrasion or anything like that. That was the depth that Jesus felt this area. And this preacher is saying, listen, You haven't even gone that far. And he did, and he endured it. Now, not only did his his blood shed then, of course, he did shed his blood on the cross. And that's our gospel, that, that his blood that was shed for us on the cross and his resurrection that proved it was true did, it removed the power and penalty of that sin, that sin that you're holding on to or might be holding on to. I'm not saying you are, but I'm saying you could be. And if you're weary and tired, you probably are. And and, and Jesus' death released the power of that sin. And so that thing that you're holding on to, you don't have to hold on to it anymore. And it's important to know that these two truths go together, that Jesus endured temptation. That's one truth. And that's our example, and, and that's our hope. He wasn't a God that walked through this earth Uh, without getting messy. He knew temptation. He knew what it was like to have mud between his toes, right? He knew humanity because he was human. He was God and he was human, 100% both. So he knew temptation, but this truth also has to go with it that he did away with the power and the penalty of sin. At the stuff that we hold on to that isn't him, we don't need to hold on to anymore. And those two truths are important for us to understand in this gap that we call struggle. Because if we're invited to change and we're invited to go, we need to know to grow, that we need to know that Jesus faced that temptation just like we do, and he's the one that provided a way out of it. We can't work our way out of it. Again, like Cam said, this is about God pursuing us, not us pursuing God. And so why do we need to know this? Because we're all struggling. Look at this in verse five. 
It says, and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. You see, if there was a part of your soul when I said everyone struggles that said, you got that right, that is evidence of something. See, you struggle because you belong to God. People that don't know God and God doesn't know them, they don't struggle with who God is. They don't struggle with how to live life God's way. If there is the slightest inkling in your heart and in your soul to know God, if there is the slightest desire to walk the way God wants you to walk, then that is a stamp on your soul that you belong to God. If, if when I said this is a place of struggle and something in your soul said yes, then that means you belong to God. Why? Because he disciplines those that he loves. He disciplines those that are his. Your struggle proves that you belong to God. And that struggle is a loving invitation from him to trust him. To trust who he is and what he's doing in your life. You see, struggle and discipline is a part, is a natural part of any relationship because now the preacher's gonna take you from church to home, right? And he's gonna say, you this, this is a part of your home life. Look at verse, the rest of verse seven. It says, it is, for, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which you have all participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. And so what he's saying is like, listen, this idea of disciplining those that you love, you've already experienced it. When you were a kid, your parents disciplined you. Now, now some of you, your parents abused you and he's not talking about that. That's different. That's a different sermon for a different day. But every parent has disciplined their child at some level, right? When your child runs into the street and a car's coming, there's no parent that says, go child, be free, right? We all do the same thing. We all yell, stop, come here, because we see what's coming, and we wanna keep our children safe. And what this preacher is saying is that God does the same thing. He has orchestrated every day in your life, and he sees what's coming, and that discipline is his way to show you the best of what's ahead. Now, being a parent isn't easy, right? When we discipline our kids, we get to see the struggle in them that they face to obey us. We can see rebellion seeping up, can't we? And sometimes, sometimes it's easy, sometimes it's hard. But the heart behind it is the same. We want what's best for our kids. God wants what's best for us, and that's why he disciplines us. That's why he wants us to trust him. And y'all, I gotta tell you, our economy is different than God's economy. Right? We think sometimes what's best for us is a better job and a fatter paycheck. And sometimes 
God knows that's not what's best for us and doesn't give us either. And we have to trust him. You see, in a family, there's this struggle to obey, to change. We all want to rebel. We want to rebel against our parents. Y'all, I was brilliant at rebelling as a teenager. Like, I did it really good. I maintained a 4.0 in high school. I partied quite a bit, so much that I snuck vodka into school so the partying could continue. That made typing class really fun. Kids, typing was a class that we took. I was great at rebellion. And I'm gonna tell you, it broke my parents' hearts because they saw it in me. And they told me not to, and they couldn't stop it, and they loved me anyway. And that's what our God does. And that's all he's asking us is to let go of those silly, stupid things we're holding on to and to trust him. So this, this is why the preacher in Hebrews says this in verse 9. I can't even see where verse 9 is now. There it is. Uh, Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, and it seemed as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. You see, God sees what's best for us. And that's why in this space, all he's saying is, trust me, let go and loosen those fists. But let's get real. I love that the preacher says this because this is what it feels like. It says, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, right? Doesn't this struggle hurt sometimes? Now, if, if you agree with me, this is a great place to say amen. Everybody besides Billy, right? Sometimes discipline hurts. Sometimes the struggle is real. But there is a reward. For the moment, verse 11, for the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness for those who have been trained by it. I love that he says later because it takes time, right? This isn't a microwave process. This is a crockpot process. It takes time, but... There is a reward. Tell me, what sounds better, weary and faint-hearted or peace and righteousness? Peace and righteousness all day, every day. And peace is this, is this reward that we get where, where there is just calmness in the midst of chaos. Righteousness is, is wisdom that's lived out. Anybody need peace? Anybody need wisdom in their life? See, then maybe it's time to loosen your fist with God and submit to him. You see, Jesus, like I said, he is the example of what it is to be in this place, to be in struggle, to be in temptation. When, when he was in the garden and he prayed and, and, and he saw what was coming. Now, this is, this is, is my paraphrase, but, but I think he looked at God and said, God, this is, this is really going to hurt like, I feel pain. When I was in heaven, pain wasn't part of the equation. This body hurts. And they're gonna drive stakes through my hands and through my feet and, 
and put thorns on my head and they're going to beat me and it's going to hurt. That's all my paraphrase. But when he prayed, he asked God, is there another way? But he knew that God's plan A had always been the cross and there was no plan B. And in Luke chapter 22, this is, this is Jesus' famous words. He says, Father, if you're willing to remove this cup from me. In other words, if there's another way, let's try that. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. That's our picture. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. You see, Jesus is greater than our struggles because he shows us how to struggle. In him, we see the perfect example of what it looks like to be in this space. And when we're in this space, we yield, we follow God, and we trust God. And y'all, this is a big deal. Because look what happens when you don't. Verse 12, it says, therefore, lift up your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. I think that's his elaboration on being weary and faint-hearted. And make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. And this, this phrase, out of joint, means dislocated. Has anybody ever experienced or seen a dislocated arm or shoulder? Yeah, it's not attractive, is it? Right? It's still connected to the body, but it just hangs there. It's useless. And, and what this preacher is saying is, is this preacher is looking out at his congregation and he is saying, listen, if this is you and you have this tight fist in your soul about who God is or what he has done, it's time to let it go. Because if you don't, what happens is you become useless to the body of Christ. You may still be connected, but you are a dislocated arm just hanging there. And God has got something so much better for you. He has created you to be an active part of the body. And if you hold this, this, this what we're going to see in a minute, this root of bitterness in your heart and in your soul and this tight fist, you're useless to the church. Anybody want to be useless? No. And see, not only does it affect you, it affects those around you. One person's rebellion not only makes them useless, but it can make an entire section of a church useless. Look, look, at, look at this in verse 14. It says, strive for peace with everyone and for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it may become defiled. Now, this, this root of bitterness phrase comes from the Old Testament of a story of a person who is part of the community of God, but they had turned away from God and started worshiping idols. Now, the picture would be as if one day you came to church and there was a Buddha up here, and, and some people were worshiping Buddha as I was up here preaching. That's the image that it comes to mind, that those people who would do that are useless to the rest of us because they've turned away from God and turned to an idol. This root of bitterness, this fist in their soul has gotten such a hold of them that now an entire section of the church is being led astray because of that. And so this submission to God brings peace and holiness, and it's this visible manifestation of the, the Lord in a congregation, but ongoing rebellion looks like this root of bitterness. And one person with this root of bitterness 
can infect a congregation. That's why this is a big deal, right? That's why this preacher is asking everybody, check what's going on in your souls because it's a big deal. It's not just between you and God. It's between you and God and the people around you who are worshiping. And what does this look like in our time? What does it look like in our church? We're not gonna have a Buddha up here. But what does it look like? I think in my experience with with churches, it looks like somebody whose heart has drifted from God. They may look good on the outside, but on the inside they're empty and they're tired. And, And what it looks like on the outside is when you talk to them, all you hear is what's going wrong with the church, not what's going right with the church. All you hear is complaining. They're complaining about their kids. They're complaining about their spouse. They're complaining about life. They're complaining about the church and they've lost the ability to see what is good and right about what God is doing in his people and in, his, in their family and their friends. Anybody ever been around someone like that? It sucks the life out of you, doesn't it? And this preacher's point is it not only sucks the life out of you, it sucks the life out of a church. And when it happens, it separates a community. And look at this, because there's another consequence. And this one, I think, is even more scary. It says, it says that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau. And so he's going to use this example of Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. And so, so what this preacher is referring to, these, this Hebrew congregation would understand, Jacob and Esau were brothers, and, and they were twins. And Esau was born first uh, by just a little bit. And so, so he got the, the, the blessing of the firstborn, which which means when, when Jacob and Esau's father died, Esau would inherit all the land, all the property, all the money, all the, all the ability to rule the family. Uh, but Esau, if, if you read in Genesis, he, he was kind of a, um, uh, he didn't make decisions well. Let's put it that way. And Jacob's making this pot of stew and it smells so good. And Esau had been out and, and didn't get anything to eat. And so he came through and he's like, give me some of that stew or I will die. So he had a flair for the dramatic. And Jacob, he wasn't much better. I mean, he was kind of shrewd and lied a lot and took advantage of situations, took advantage of this situation and said, sure, I'll give you some stew. Um, let's say for the right of the firstborn. You let me have everything and you can have this bowl of stew. And, you know, when I say it like that, it sounds absurd, doesn't it? But in Esau's mind, it made sense. And he said, done, deal. Fast forward a few years, their father is on his deathbed. All of a sudden, Esau starts making preparations like he's going to get the blessing of the firstborn. He's going to get all the land. He's going to get all the property. He's going to get all the rights. And Jacob comes in and takes it from him because he gave it away. You see, the preacher's point is that this root of bitterness, this fist that, that may be in your soul, It may not seem like a big deal now, but one day it will. Jacob and Esau didn't know the day that their father was going to die, but one day he did die, and all the land switched to one of them. 
We don't know the day that this is gonna become a big deal, but there will be a day where if this is left unconfessed and unrepented and it spreads, it will be a big deal. Now, our rebellion takes a lot of different forms. For some of you, Jesus is in this space. And, and you love God and what you know about God you love. And, and Jesus is a good teacher. And, and man, he might even have been a miracle worker. And, and, and for the Jews, he might have meant something that was really good and sincere. But to you, he's just a guy who lived a really good life. But scriptures point to him as somebody vastly different than that. Scriptures say that he is God and that he is Savior and that he is your Savior. And for you, that might be your fist. And today might be the day you open up your fist and receive Jesus for who he is. Not just the Messiah for the nation of Israel, but your Savior and Lord. That his death was for you. But many of us in here have already done that. Our fists look very different. Now, I'm gonna step on some toes here, all right? So bear with me. Our fists look like theology. Here's what I'm gonna say by that. Theology means the study of God. Theology is not God. And sometimes our fists are holding tighter to what Calvin said, to what Spurgeon said, to what Arminius said, more than what Scripture says. We need to let that go. Sometimes, sometimes in this space, we become experts of church. In my own heart, I'm just going to be real, 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 real here, okay? There are some songs, one song in particular in that first worship set, it's not my favorite song. It's let us receive the rain or whatever that, that, that bridge is. I don't even know what that means, right? Right, and, and I'm sitting right over there singing it going, what in the world does this mean? You know, we can hold a tight fist and say if it's not a hymn, it's not worship. Here's what I did over there. I was like, God, I, I don't know what this means and I was like this, and I said, just show me what this means. And he gave me this picture of being out in the rain and just letting it hit me and just letting it refresh me. Like not a cold rain, you know, but like the perfect temperature rain in the perfect place, and it was refreshing to me. And I sat right over there and opened my fist and just said, God, what is this? And he showed me. And this song that still isn't one of my favorite songs became a place of worship. That's what it looks like. And let me tell you, if that's you, then please don't read the Psalms because you know what? It talks about trees clapping hands and I don't know what that means either. <laughs> but the psalmist did and it was a place of worship. And all of us have these places in our souls and in our hearts where God is waiting patiently for us just to open up and trust him. And some of them may look really good but all of us have them. And so what does a root of bitterness look like to you? Where is your fist held tight to God and where do you need to loosen that fist? When I was in Tennessee uh, uh, helping pastor a church there, 
Um, there was this guy named Bill, and he actually lived in Dallas and, and uh, went to a church that I knew in Dallas. Uh, it, was, it was in Dallas proper, and, and um, uh, he actually became a Christian at that church. He was kind of this motorcycle guy that got involved with a motorcycle ministry, which I think sounds awesome. And um, uh, they got to know him and loved him and, and shared the gospel with him and, and invited him to church, and he became part of that church community. And, and, and so I got to see these interesting snapshots because he had his, his best friend lived in Jackson, Tennessee, where I lived. So I would see Bill about every six months or so. He would come to visit his friend. And so I got to see these interesting snapshots of Bill's spiritual life. I got to see him before Christ, where, where Jim would bring him to church. And, and, and then I got to see him come to Christ. And, and man, he was, you know, you've heard the term on fire. He was, he was, he was on fire for God. And, and, and his relationship with God was fresh and it was new. And, 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 and he was reading the Bible and understanding it and praying and prayers were being answered. And then he had an interaction with a pastor that he liked the pastor. He just didn't like the answer he was given from the pastor. And it started changing something in him. And this root of bitterness started growing in him. And he had this, this fist that was tight. And y'all, let me put a disclaimer on this. I'm a pastor and I'm not right all the time. All right, I don't know if this pastor was right. I don't know if he was wrong. I just know how Bill responded to it. And he had this tight fist of I'm right and this guy's wrong. And I got to see these snapshots of Bill and, and what was once beautiful and fresh started being tweaked a little bit. Until one day this, this church had been portable and then they built this building in Dallas, which, you know, is beautiful and grand and everything new and shiny and, 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 and he was kind of excited about it. But the conversation wasn't the opportunities for ministry that that building was gonna provide. It wasn't all the great things that was going to be in that building. What Bill literally talked to me about was that he didn't like where they planted the trees. That's where his fist had got him. He could no longer see the great things that God was doing all he could see is where they planted the trees he didn't like. Now, church, may this never be us. May we open up our hands instead of close our fist because there's bigger and better things that God is doing than where trees are planted, right? You see, this is what a root of bitterness does. You lose your ability to see what God is doing. And the only remedy to that is submission to God. Loosen your fist and open up your hand. And so the question for you to consider is where do you need to loosen your fist? Let's pray.